Hey, and welcome to another episode of the Get More Students podcast. I'm your co-host, Alex Asher, the CEO of LearnCube. And I'm Herbert Gerzer, founder of HerbertGerzer.com. Today we are talking uh, with a special guest who I'll introduce very shortly, but we're going to be talking about rethinking marketing, and particularly rethinking marketing for in-person language schools. Mm. Now, this is a group of um, companies that have really had a bit of a battle during these months and almost years now of COVID, so it's been a really challenging time for in-person language schools, yeah. and particularly with LearnCube, we've been really exposed with that um, with that difficulty, but also a lot of um, language schools have really embraced online technology and are looking towards that to uh, to find new growth opportunities. But also it's becoming, I think, uh, and again, we're going to hear more from Peter later on, we're seeing online also facilitating more people coming in person and it sort of works like a virtuous cycle. So uh, mm. I'm really excited about this conversation. And, and Herbert, you have a lot of experience <laughs> with language schools and them trying to market their services. Oh, definitely. I mean, in the last 18 months, um, a lot of these uh, you know, in-person language schools had to switch um, to online online uh, courses uh, very quickly, and yeah, you know, we had to help our clients adapt to the very rapidly changing conditions in the market to promote those new offers. So I'm very interested in hearing Peter's experience and thoughts um, about yeah what has happened in the last one and a half years. That's right. And so, without further ado, let us uh, introduce Peter Hayes. So his current role is Director at um, International House Manchester. He's been in education for 30-odd years and wow. uh, possibly uh, one, basically leading his particular branch through uh, you know, an absolutely wild year. Uh, <laughs> but we're really excited about having you on the, on the show today, Peter. Okay. Thanks for joining us, Peter. Thanks, guys. It's lovely to be here. But yes, what, what, what an 18 months indeed. <laughs> and it's really not over. No, it's not. No, it's not. I mean, take take us back. You know, I, I think so many people that are listening today, particularly those that run in, in, uh, in-person language schools, will empathize with your journey, uh, at least with the start of it, because so mm. many language schools were operating in a very similar way. So, again, just give us a bit of a speck of what that looked like before COVID-19 hit in. How were you marketing your language school? Sure. I mean, back in the day, I um, can almost just remember what it was like in those days. I think most probably we were doing the same things as most other language schools, really, possibly all chasing the same customer, all doing it in the same way, um, attending the the workshops, traveling a lot, meeting people, making those relationships with agents. And then your website was almost an online brochure that you, you kind of referred to. You were aware you ought to do a bit more with it, but it wasn't important right then. So I guess that sums it up. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, and actually, I think, Herbert, you would agree. And we've done previous <laughs> episodes on the Get More Students podcast about we- websites and them feeling mm. like brochures. Uh, now, yeah. we, I think that definitely echoes what, what we've seen. Um, and so there was obviously that moment um, where you had to switch your marketing strategies. So what kind of now that we're sort of almost sort of 18 months in, you know, what's, where are we at with the marketing mix and how you're approaching marketing? Sure. I think 
um, agent relationships are really important still. That That's clear. And I think everyone would agree on that. The mm. thing is, they're a lot stronger now. And I would say a big difference is we've got fewer active agents. But the ones that we do have, we've got those really stronger ties with because they've come with us on this journey through the yeah. last 18 months. We know each other a lot better. We've worked together to create programs, new new ideas, new ways of marketing. So um, it's really changed. And I think possibly the biggest difference is the uh, increased importance of our website. You know, it's now it's a medium to sell. It's a selling machine. It's got to be e-commerce ready. We've got a full social media marketing plan driving traffic in. And with Herbert's help, we've done so well with that. So it's you know, really, the the tables have turned a little bit and different priorities, I would say. Really interesting. What would you so the, the new website seems obviously a crucial part of that that mix. Tell me a little bit more about how you I mean, also, it sounds like you've transitioned really well with your agents by bringing them along with you on this. But what were the things that you're, you've, you've collaborated on in the past and particularly maybe some of the ones that worked and maybe some of the ones that didn't so that those mm-hmm. that are listening can also maybe avoid some of the things that maybe don't work so well? Well, look, I think I've heard Herbert say before about test, 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 and I think it's never been more true. So <laughs> with agents, we might get an idea. We might then get our academic team in. And I think that's a massive difference that academic teams working with marketing teams together to co-create something. That's amazing. And when we bring the agency too, that's really, really speeds things up. So, you know, that, that was really the thing with agents. I'll give you a really clear example. One of our agents who's I've worked with for the last 15 years and she was amazing when this thing started. We got together. We were just like, wow, what are we going to do? And then once we got over that, we were right. This is what we're going to do. And she came up with this idea that we needed to pitch our online timetable at a time of day radically different to the UK school day. So we we went in with three o'clock start in the afternoon and we went through till half six UK time. We gave 60 minute lessons instead of these blocks of 90 minutes. We allowed students to take two lessons a week. It, it was a total radical shakeup, but thanks to Audrey from Indirizzo, she, she gave me that, that sort of insight and we've just went from there onwards, really. I think that was a really good start. I think that seems fundamental. Herbert, what's been your impression with changing? I mean, we, we talked a lot about this at the very start of the pandemic, which was a lot of language schools really battling with changing a very fixed schedule big blocks, big chunks of, of time into something that works a little bit better online, in particular with this, the smaller classes and so forth. What are, are there any other kind of ideas you had about that or what you've seen with other language schools? Yeah, I mean, obviously the kind of go, going online opens up uh, new markets as well. Um, obviously fixed fixed times don't, don't work um, if your markets are in different time zones. So uh i've seen a lot of success with language schools offering uh, you know either the same course um at different times different days of the week even for specific uh markets um or um yeah the, these kind of uh new courses um for specific um areas specific purposes um and so really expanding that kind of product product range to meet a a larger um yeah target market 
Makes sense. Sorry, I was just going to say that that makes me think we've just at the moment recruiting a director of studies in Malaysia so we can cope with that time frame over there in the Far East. And I think that would be a really useful move um, to to do that because we're getting inquiries from Southeast Asia that we can't manage in the UK. We can't have teachers teaching at three in the morning. So, yeah, that's a good example. Interesting. Um, Peter, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated, uh, to know, you know, at, at the start of this, you know, a lot of language schools thought that in online, um, courses would be sort of an interim, uh, thing until things went back to normal. Um, I don't know if you th- think things are going to, uh, go back to normal and if online courses, um, really is going to, are, are going to stick around as they, as they have in the past 18 months or are we, Looking to, to going back to you know that study travel um, uh, setting where uh, a lot of students are coming over um, from different countries and, and taking courses in person. Sure, that's a really good question. I think right from the beginning we were kind of convinced that this thing was going to last, and mm. we were also really convinced that it was going to be irreversible, and that kind of counted out mothballing the school and sitting back and hibernating for to, to ride out the storm. We, we mm. never contemplated that. And I put that down to a talk I attended at the IH um, Directors Conference, and there was a fantastic speaker called Lorraine Kennedy, and she told us um, that this thing was going to last, and she gave pointed me in the direction of some reading that I did how this thing was going to carry on. And I think, you know, it's... Once everybody has seen what online learning is about, the quality of online learning, people have that perception that they didn't have before. I think previously online learning was seen as something that's free, uh, Mm. poor quality, ineffective. And I think what the crisis has forced people to see is that that's not the case. So there's a real value in online learning right now. And I think the convenience, the fact that it's opened on um, online learning's opened up quality English language tuition to people around the world who would never have contemplated the study travel market because they couldn't afford the fees. They couldn't have got a visa. They didn't have time because they got busy lives. They couldn't just leave their families. So I think there's a massive demographic that's opened up to online learning so for us and i think it was important for our agent partners you know they were investing a lot of time on this journey with us to convert their their marketing media over to online learning from what it was so that was a big leap of faith so we had to reassure them we were committed to this for the long term and it was worth them investing that time yeah great um I'm also kind of curious just in terms of you made that kind of you saw it was going to be a long term thing where um, where are the kind of roots for kind of optimism in your view as well? Like you you obviously were like, I think knowing that that's not going to change really gave you the confidence to invest in some alternative ways of going about it. And you obviously brought your your partners in with that same vision. So where are you, um, yeah, how are you kind of taking things to that next level and, and, and the opportunities that follow? Sure. I think there's, there's so much room for optimism. I know it's difficult times <laughs> for people, but, you know, I, I honestly do because 
you've got to think about it. Someone gave me a statistic the other day. One in four people in the world are learning a language right now. I mean, that that's massive. Wow. You know that? So we don't have to fear that online learning is going to suddenly swamp in-person courses. What I'm really interested in now and what me and my team are looking at now is how we can harness blended learning, online learning, to drive in-person bookings. And I think that that's a real possibility. I think that there is still appetite for travel and we're hitting more people and telling more people the message about the, the strength of the study travel experience is there. It's more diverse. We're getting it out to more people. So I think it'll only drive more people back to in-country courses. But I think the key is how we can use online learning to, to drive those bookings. How are you currently, or how did you see that play out? Um, so certainly from LearnCube's perspective, we've always sort of seen a transition or at least an entry point where people might start with a lower cost. You know, when we're talking cost, like cost of travel is probably <laughs> an, an accommodation is huge compared to the actual education component. So online learning is a lower a lower cost entry point. Are you seeing a kind of, I guess, a pre kind of course or a pre experience online before people come to an in-person experience with you, Peter? Yeah, we're encouraging our students to take online courses before they actually arrive in the UK. So, for example, not just to help them manage quarantine, which is really useful. I think having the hybrid class is such a great thing that they can meet their teacher, they meet their classmates before they even leave their own country. So once they arrive in school in Manchester, they just join in the same class that they've been part of for the last two weeks. So we've offered that as a free offer to all of our students who are booking an in-person course. And it introduces them to hybrid as a, as a concept, but it's been really powerful. And what we're doing now is offering a free trial to somebody contemplating an in-person course. But that free trial is, of course, an online class because we can say to them, this is the experience you're going to get. You're just going to be on the other side of the screen. And... Mm. Another thing that we're trying to do is introduce the concept of online to our in-person students on exit. So we're offering them a free week of online lessons. Stay with the class. The party's not over yet. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody wants to. Everyone gets home and shows their holiday photos. This time you can actually go back and still carry on for a week. So it's that idea of bridging the two sides of things using online. Love that. So good, by the way, Peter. It's, um, honestly, it's like breath of fresh air. We're finally hearing that pre, during and post Mm. course. It's the thing that LearnCube have been trying to, uh, explain for a little while, but it's really great. And it seems a lot more natural now. Uh, One I think is, it's totally clever about what you're saying as well is if somebody can join a, you know, particularly this hybrid class before they enter, uh, it, it first sort of gets them kind of used to the class, so they're not starting uh, from 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 stop. They're already kind of walking or even possibly running towards that that in-person experience. You've mentioned like how do you get people to accept quarantine? Well, they're already starting in the class, so that's another brilliant way that they can keep going. And then they have this great uh, travel experience, and then when they go back, 
Uh, and because they've been in the class, they've got more empathy for the other people, including what they might be themselves when they return back to their country. So there's a lot of really smart things that are coming out of that, and I can see some real room for optimism in that, Peter. Sure. I, I think, I mean, it's kind of you to say that, but I think the the, the strength of, of what we do has never been more important than the, the quality of the teaching, and that, yeah. that comes down to the teacher more than anything, you know, and we've got so much to be thankful for our teaching team who embraced mm. online before it was even a thing. You know, I mean, when when um, be- with three weeks before lockdown, these guys were already training at school and they were offering free classes to our students to to test out Zoom as a media because we kind of knew it was coming um just because we were watching our colleagues in IH Palermo in Italy and it was clear what was coming to us. Mm. So I think that giving us a head start, uh, we were ahead of the curve there and it, it brought the students with us. So there wasn't any shock. They'd already experienced online before it became mandatory. And there's some really heartwarming stories. There was a guy who had to travel home to the Middle East and his own country put him in quarantine at the first lockdown coming from the UK. And he's carried on attending his online lessons in this lockdown facility, which I thought was a really heartwarming story. Definitely. So um, I think we've learned a lot in terms of how you've approached it and how you've now got this bridge um, between those different experiences. Is there anything about how you, you you've also talked about how you market and sell that by bundling that as well and using that as a teaser for an in-person um, experience and plus also as a almost like a validation tool from the way that you've described it, Peter. But when people get to experience it, it really validates that they're making the right choice. Um, any other kind of insights about how to market or or build trust with people that at the moment feel very hesitant and a little bit unsure about what's happening next? I think it's like we've talked about before where you've got to give that effective shot window to what's happening in your school. That I think that people want to know the people they're going to meet. So it's wonderful to see great facilities and a blue sky and all these excursions, but People ultimately want to know who's the person they're going to meet. They need to visualize that. And I think that's where harnessing video and we've done a lot Mm. of work on up in our game with our video. We've invested in cameras and in microphones and lights and that like like a lot of people will have done, you know, but it allows us to push the teacher center stage because they deserve it. But because they're the people who are going to meet our students and our students are going to entrust their um, their language learning too. And I think that's become even more important in the crisis. Fantastic. I love that you took the initiative of uh, leveraging video. Um, and yeah, it, it is the future. You know, we were talking previously about uh, just opening up the your your whole language school to to the world, showing behind the scenes footage of the inner workings um, to establish and build that that trust. I think that this glass wall concept is really hit home when I heard the story about this restaurant in Hong Kong that you have to walk through the kitchen to get to the dining room. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it stuck with me. It, well, it was I really like that concept. 
And so you've we've talked on the kind of I think the model that a lot of people are familiar with. But one of the things that is really interesting is also how you're using. I mean, we're talking about virtual reality before as well as just an interesting um, innovation, and it can kind of help you break through the noise a little bit. And in many ways, I wonder if it's marketing in particular that it kind of can <laughs> add value um, on top of the educational benefits. What's been your experience, uh, starting with VR and then maybe more generally, like how can people use and market a technology or an experience? Okay, well, I mean, the, the VR research project that we've been involved with, with Christian and his colleagues at Immerse, I mean, that's been absolutely amazing. We, we're just completing a five-week research project where Tina, one of our teachers, has been teaching a hybrid group. So there's been two or three people in the classroom in Manchester and then three people around the world converging in the VR environment. And it's just amazing. I went in there last week to just get a feel for what it was like, and it really is quite amazing. I mean, that that experience... For the students, it's indescribable. I think we talk about this wow moment when you put on the headset and you go into the room because the flat screen publicity doesn't do it justice. Mm. So I think what we're learning there, and we did expect to, but it has been validated by the, the, the project, is that people are emboldened in that environment. They There can be an avatar. They can be who they want. They can hide behind that and almost like a fancy dress party. You know, it, it brings people out of themselves and that's something to, to actually see. But the, the data is going to be published. It's going to be, there's going to be a paper and that will, will show exactly how that works. I mean, as far as, um, using VR and mark for marketing purposes, I think it's it's really important that to, to to be imaginative and creative how we can use the VR environment. And I, I think when I was listening to Christian in the, the last webinar and he was talking about that desire from the customer, I, I desperately want to see it, he said. And, and it went back to glass walls again and the shop window. How do we show these little bits of magic that are happening yeah. in every school? That That's kind of the essence of of marketing to me how do you capture that and how do you display that to the world and i think you know i'm already planning we've got to have a 360 vr film made of the school you know no longer the same flat screen video let's have somebody walking in because if you had a headset and let's face it 10 million headsets have been sold now oculus that's kind of a tipping point almost when iphones became adopted widely so you're looking at marketing within the VR environment in the metaverse that um, is, is talked about, that, that Facebook is, is talking about. It, it's That's where people are going to experience things that they want to buy and they'll be able to do it in such a more convincing way. It's amazing. Fascinating new world. Yeah, I <laughs> just said there though, Peter, as well, which was um, can it be used as um, in a marketing way as well. And you kind of gave an, a really good example of that. So um, I guess you can kind of do it with an iPhone <laughs> and just take people around. But there must be something about that real-timeness that makes whatever is promoted a lot more real. And I, I, I'm just wondering if, uh, for example, you, you mentioned that you have agents in, say, um, in the Gulf. 
know, if they have a VR headset that they can give a student and then basically have that student walk around the the, the physical language school that you have, that yeah. can give um, yeah. a really great, interesting experience that's maybe alleviate some of the, maybe some lingering doubts of whether or not the photos are exactly what was done. You know, they can get a much more encompassing experience with that. Is that, have you ever used it like that? And is that a way to use it? No, I, we did uh, we did an online agent um, fam trip uh, okay. during the summer last year where one of our staff used the phone on Zoom live streamed to walk through and introduce everybody. And, yeah. and everybody loved that. It was a nice concept. But when you consider how much more powerful that would be with a VR headset on, you would literally be able to turn your head and see around the room and see different people in different positions. The teacher would be right in front of you mm-hmm. and then you'd walk out and then you'd be in reception. I mean, it would really be a very powerful way of showing your school. And I think that's what people have missed with the in-person study travel, the, the fam trips. A lot of people yeah. meant, you know, we can't do fam trips anymore. We don't meet face to face, but there's so much more that we can do. That to, to substitute that, you know, there, there's still a lot of good stuff we can do. Do you, do you ever send a VR headset to an individual, whether that be an agent or a student? Like, do you actually post it? And have you done that? And if so, does that work? Or because that's, I mean, the fundamental is you can't have a VR experience except, you know, there are ways you can get a, an experience or at least a touch of that using video or even YouTube. Um, I think they've got a YouTube VR kind of experience in a way, but is there a way that you can send that? Because the, the the hardware is the is the mm. limiter at the moment, right? Yeah, yeah. it is, um, and that's the thing that you know when we did the research project, what what I did was I worked closely with colleagues from IH schools, so the the schools who recruited the participants in in the remote cohort were recruited by international houses in Santiago and Palermo and Galway and Ireland. And they they invested in a headset because they wanted this thing to work and they wanted to try it out. I think the, the way that I could see this working really easily is if we're back to physical workshops, I can take my own VR headset and I can show an agent, have a look at our school, you know, and OK, mm. it's sat there for two minutes with the headset on but it would be so much more powerful um, and when we're all traveling again we can carry a VR headset we can then show somebody in their office an agent partner in their office exactly what it looks like um, yeah okay headsets are 300 euros 300 pounds usually 300 dollars anywhere in the world still quite a high cost but there is going to be an Apple headset launched next year, I think, in the first quarter, and that's probably going to make competition and the price can only come down. I mean, if we think how iPhones were marketed and the cost of those was really limiting how many people could have them, but as I say, things are moving forwards. It can only get more diverse. Yeah, Peter, you've talked about some examples with the marketing side. So I'm, I actually, that, that can make a, uh, makes a lot of sense to me because you've got uh, a window where you want to make a bigger first impression and, and a VR headset can provide a very different impression compared to uh, a flat screen. So 
Tell me a little bit more on the with the experiment you did. Did you do that with students as well? Is there an is this an education tool, or was it also more for the, helping helping your agents understand? Um, no, this was this was this has been a five week research project where the teacher has taught a lesson. We've got a um, homogenous level group, so we've got a group of sixteen years plus who are all B two level, and. Mm-hmm. They've taken an hour of class a day, five days a week for the last five weeks. So we've planned the teaching materials around the medium of VR. I mean, the teacher has found so many new ways of doing things. I mean, it's so amazing. I'll give you an example that you can put students, you know, in breakout rooms on Zoom, you go into a breakout room. The teacher comes in to monitor. And I remember telling agent partners how wonderful it was that the teacher can be in a Zoom room and clearly hear what language is being produced and then they can take those away. In the VR MS classroom, you can put your students into audio breakout rooms so that everything remains the same, but you can only hear two or three students at a time. So then the teacher can monitor without actually interrupting anybody. And... They can give the student feedback in real time so that the student can look down at their wrist in the virtual world and see an example of what they've said. And then they've got an opportunity to reformulate the language and correct it. And that speeds up that process that in a classroom with a group, you just wouldn't be able to achieve in that time. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and I think particularly when you apply it um, you know, to groups, I was really interested in like how long that, that duration was. And you've kind of, um, answered that as well. Sort of an hour a day, um, five days a week. So it was really definitely interesting to, to learn from. Anything, I, I guess we'll probably wait and see what are the results from <laughs> that. Um, but anecdotally, it sounds like it's been a really positive, uh, fun experience for you. It, it has. And I think more importantly for the students, you know, they really were, enjoying that session and they've been reporting positively throughout because you know there there was a consideration how are students going to feel if they're in a VR environment because some people report feeling dizzy and things like that but you know it it was the VR headset made up one part of the lesson it wasn't totally in VR so the, the students would be in a hybrid environment and then move into VR for part of the lesson but you know, that was the thing. So just to, just to clarify, with the with the hour, were they with the headset on the entire hour, or do you mean that they were, would mix it up and sort of that the, the headset became a tool that was part of a almost an in person or online class? Exactly. The it, the teacher would set up the, the the lesson in different stages and introduce maybe some new language or some new um, formulate language, and then they'd do some control practice. But then when they were moving into the free practice, rather than just going into breakout groups and breakout rooms, then at that point, they go into the VR environment. So um, it was used in that way, yeah. Okay, so that makes it really sort of a, makes makes a lot of sense in terms of using it as a tool and using the right tool for the right job. Um, very cool. Herbert, do you have any other kind of questions on kind of how to both prom- like use new technology, but also how to promote new technology Definitely. I mean, I know a lot of language schools have used um, the situation to 
uh, find opportunities to innovate, um, especially online with new technology, new learning platforms. Um, I'm interested in kind of your, your, your discovery phase, Peter, of when was the right time to, um, to innovate, uh, and, you know, what kind of options were, were there on, on, on the table? Because I think a lot of language schools are like, okay, I, I know that we need to do something in terms of technology or innovation, but, you know, what is the right path to go? Sure. I think it, with us, it started with, like I said, the, the experimental phase before lockdown. And we, we, we moved towards Zoom and that was the medium that we used. And I think, um, from there, we were just trying to keep ahead of the game at that stage because we, we could anticipate that lockdown would end at some point. But we realized that it probably wouldn't last too long anyway. But for a time, people would come back into the classroom. So we were looking ahead to ways of making that experience. I mean, I, mm. I literally sketched out a drawing on um, on the whiteboard of how I saw students in class and students remotely around the world. And we were like, how can we make this happen? And, and that was when we, we decided we needed to use some technology. We used the meeting owl. So this telepresence, the perfect little box that has a 360 camera, microphones and speaker and made for corporate meetings. And you put it in the middle of the room and it picks up everybody. And it can also be used incorporated with Zoom so that the remote students can see a 360 view of the classroom. And that that was really good. And then it became obvious that sound quality trumped visual when it comes to online and so following the lead of our colleagues in IH Santiago we invested in microphones and mixing desks so that we could really improve the sound quality for for the student um, because the teacher I think the teacher's job has evolved immensely over this mm. last month hasn't it um, mm. they've had to teachers have had to take on a lot more skills and a heavier workload so i think definitely yeah that's one point i'm really fascinated by peter is the evolution of teachers like when we when i thought of like what that would look like uh, initially i was like whoa i really you know this will be a big task for teachers to switch from being teachers doing what they've always been doing in a lot of cases for for many years with small evolutions each year to like a massive radical shift to potentially also needing to be a real presenter. Uh, entertainer, I think, is maybe the wrong word, mm. but it's close, which is, uh, you know, and, and also being capable uh, and confident in using technology that, again, the right tool for the right job. Um, how have you, what, what have you observed from teachers on that? Because that was the bit that, felt like the the real hard one was was teachers that have been doing something maybe even starting on a whiteboard slash blackboard um to now using technologies just like a pro would like if i was to do a speaking thing i would need a mic and know how to use my slides well and not lose the audience by just talking to my slides and and going through each each single point like there's a lot of like soft skills that go into making a great delivery so what what insights do you have on that so I think first thing to say is that as a school, we're incredibly lucky to have a team of teachers led by academic managers who embrace this thing 
from the start. They dived into this thing. They went into this thing with a, we're going to make this work. You know, I, I, I was bowled over by that reaction because you can't manage people to do that. They either will react like that or they won't. So incredibly grateful for that. And they, there were people who were teachers who suddenly popped up with ideas so resourceful ways of making things work better for the students that um, that was quite amazing. And then the academic team were meeting weekly to run sessions for teachers, to give teachers much more observed feedback and then pull everyone together. What have we learned this week? And that was going on week in, week out. And then I think with the International House organization, we've got so much talent around the world. We could all put our heads together that they swung into gear really quickly and started coordinating us all in Google groups. And we could then meet and exchange ideas. Best practice was then emerging really quickly that people could share. And we were running webinars, different schools who specialized and who pioneered things were then sharing what they'd done. There's been an awful lot of sharing, I think, in the industry as a mm. whole. And that I think that was the realization when we were running our webinars, we, we were letting everybody in because, OK, they were for the agent partners. But we realized there was a lot of interest from even competitors. But it was a crisis. We're not going to get precious. We wanted people to, to join in and see what we were doing. And, and that's hence I'm here today, you know talking about what we've done it's in that spirit really well what a great way also to maybe finish up um but peter absolute uh pleasure talking to you today and i've really learned a lot so genuinely thank you for for joining us it's a pleasure guys thank you ever so much for having me on thank you absolutely and i I hope uh other in-person language schools out there uh are able to take some uh, nuggets of advice from you, Peter. Uh, yeah. And, and likewise, if you're um, wanting to listen to more um, ideas, inspiration and motivation um, to uh, help grow your marketing uh, of your language school or tutoring company, I feel like we've delivered on that promise and particularly thanks again to you, Peter. Um, so make sure you subscribe to the Get More Students podcast. Um, you can catch me at learncube.com and Herbert at Herbert Goetzer. Dot com, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks again. See you in the next one.